When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week's episode features singer Michal Tauber, and I learned how to pronounce her name correctly through this show. We discuss her new album, No Resolution. We also talk about being born in Israel, going to law school instead of pursuing music. We also discuss taking Dave Perner to the prom while she was in high school and how her neighbor in Las Vegas was a bank robber. Please give us a follow at Performance ANX on Twitter and Instagram, and don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you listen. Please enjoy this episode of Performance Anxiety featuring Michal Tauber. Hi, this is Michal Tauber, and I am on Performance Anxiety, and I have Performance Anxiety. Oh my God! greatest the action on the strings is really high and so I was, i'm sitting there trying to, to finger chords and all like, oh this is horrible this isn't what i want to do because i'm listening to i mean this is you know mid late 80s like i want to play zeppelin and hendrix how, how can i do it on this thing this isn't what they're playing i didn't realize i could you know this is you got to learn chords and so, i mean you can't just jump mm-hmm. into playing you know crossroads by clapton or something so i didn't realize that at the time but I can I, definitely relate to that too. I mean, I play um, acoustic guitar, I play rhythm guitar, you know, yeah. and I've tried many times to learn how to solo and be more of a lead guitar player and it's never worked out for me. So it's, I could definitely relate to that. Uh, and I studied classical piano when I was a kid. So I have a lot of aptitude on that instrument, but to yeah. transfer it to another one is very difficult. It is. See, and I, I can't even do it on one. So I can't imagine trying to transfer it from one to the other. I guess, I guess you know, they're completely different instruments. So I guess it's, there's really not much that can transmit over to the other i mean it's just totally just yeah. reading music I, i've is- never been i mean i can i can read music and i'm very much in that like square box i was classically trained and it's hard to break out of that training so i'm not yeah. like a good improviser or anything like that okay, so okay. it's a totally different animal than somebody that can just like solo on the guitar you know like uh, i need to write my parts out beforehand and really know what i'm gonna play i can't just like on the fly like do an amazing solo or something oh okay okay <laughs> and uh, so how did you get started? You you were really young when you started on the with classical uh, piano. Yeah, I would say classical so, guitar, classical <laughs> piano. Yeah. So supposedly, you know, the the lore in my family that my mom likes to say is that I was singing before I could speak, and I was always like writing songs when I was little. Right. And um, they took me to like a, a Philip Glass concert when I was little, oh, and I was wow. like, I want to play the piano. Yeah. That's a heck of a that. that's a heck of a concert to go to when, as a little kid. Yeah, my parents were like artists, so they're visual artists and they would always take us to galleries, even like when we were really little babies and stuff. And so I got like a a good exposure to arts when I was little. Um, And then, yeah, so I really thank them for that. And then when I was five, they enrolled me in like the Suzuki method for piano. And when I was six, um, I had a private teacher, this is Lisa Grad um, on Central Park West. And I started going to lessons with her and she's amazing. She's in her 90s now and she's still teaching. And she became this like really big like mentor for me both personally and musically she was like somebody that I could like go and talk to about my problems when I was a teenager and even when I like went away to college I would come back and take a lesson with her now and then and she's just really awesome and when I told her that I wanted to become a rock star she gave me my first acoustic guitar and was very supportive of that as well oh wow that's so nice most yeah. most instructors that I've run across do the exact opposite like no no <laughs> don't be a, you don't want to be a rock star who's going to be a rock star you're going to be a rock star study your scales yeah I, th- I think at that point she had kind of given up on making me like a classical pianist <laughs> so she was like yeah you should follow this other path you know <laughs> you do have you, you do have talent if that's what you want to do again. but now you were actually born in israel right yes yes so my parents because they were these crazy artsy people 
they decided to make Aliyah and move to the Holy Land in the oh. 70s. Wow. And, okay. Except they were coming from like New York and they moved to this like frontier town, Ashkelon, which is like a shithole in the middle of nowhere. And it's right next to Gaza. I was going to say, oh my God. <laughs> so Holy. It was like rocketed all the time. And what? Like, you know, they would have like dust storms and like plagues of locusts, like biblical, <laughs> you know. And <laughs> so they were just like miserable, you know, and they oh lived there for a couple of years, long enough for me to be born there. And then when I was almost one, they were like, screw this, we can't hack it here. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give them credit for figuring it out, at least. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, the fact that they managed to hang on there for, like, three years is pretty crazy. <laughs> three years of rockets I mean, and locusts. Yeah, I mean, Jeez. even, like, Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, which is where most people would move, it's kind of like a third-world, first-world country, you know? Yeah. Like, they don't have, like, a lot of creature comforts. You have to be more of, like, a Sabra, like, a <laughs> you know, a frontiers person to live in Israel okay. than in New York. So it definitely was, like, a big culture shock for them i think and they, and they were from like the island or they they were from like uh like manhattan and they moved over there or well my mom was born in puerto rico and she moved to new york when she was like eight um okay. and then my dad is a couple generations in new york um and he was his family's from like eastern europe okay so, but they're yeah. from, they're from like like new york like the new york city area not like yes. like yes. albany or <laughs> Cause I can see, I can, you know, take out the, the bombs and the locust and I could see some like <laughs> Northwestern areas of New York not being so different. It, mm-hmm. It's just heat cold instead of heat. I lived in Rochester for several years and, uh, <laughs> I, I, I might prefer Gaza to Rochester. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, maybe I shouldn't say that. That's, that might be a bad thing to say. I don't know. <laughs> but so that's all right. So you're around one when you move back so no you don't remember rockets or locusts yeah no i have like no real memories of being there but i i was saddled with an israeli name that nobody can pronounce and i'm gonna give it a know, you. it's michal right <laughs> it's very close so that's that's very very close but you have to have the hut in the middle so it's michal it's michal like you are hawking a loogie <laughs> okay okay so you got one of the you got a, a name with a loogie in it Right. Yeah, and every Israeli that meets me is like, oh my God, you're Naomi Khan and you don't speak Hebrew? And like now I speak a little bit. So I have like, you know, I speak like a three year old. And my accent is terrible. <laughs> that'd be but- like, my name, all right, so my name is Mark Shea and I'm super, I'm like the most Irish person ever. That'd be like saying, hey, you're Mark Shea, you, you don't speak Gaelic? I mean, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank on. you. Yeah. <laughs> come on. I, I, you were there barely long enough to actually be alive. So I, I'll, cut, I'll cut you some slack. <laughs> Not being Jewish myself, I will cut you some slack on. on Thank you. Not I appreciate Jewish. it. <laughs> yeah. And then when we moved back, we moved to the Heights. So we were in Washington Heights until I was eight. And then okay. we moved to the Upper West Side um, to Ooh. 94th and Amsterdam. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what was that like? I mean, I growing up in, in New York City and just having the availability, or, or the access to so much uh, culture, so much uh, international food, music. Uh, people, it, I mean, I grew up in, you know, between New Jersey and Virginia and, you know, and then moved to Alabama and it was just everything for me, it's all been very continental. I guess my, my question is, is, did that have an influence on you, uh, when you started writing music? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think just everything that you said, just having like, everything's open 24 seven and the energy is this like very manic energy. And I find that that's become very much a part of me, you know? And I didn't realize that that was like a bizarre thing until I started meeting people that had never been to New York and they come there and they're like, Oh my God, I hate it. It's so loud. It's so busy. It smells so bad, you know? And for me, it's like, that was just like my environment. So that was normal to me. And um, I think in a lot of ways it afforded me the opportunity to get involved in music very young because, you know, when I was when I was going to Hunter High School, they had a program where you could get class credit doing an internship somewhere. And so I heard about Sidewalk Cafe, which is the it had the longest running open mic in New York City history. And so I went there like one Monday night and I met the guy who ran the open mic latch, who became another mentor of mine. Um, and he basically started the anti-folk movement and a lot of artists came up through that scene like Beck and Moldy Peaches and like right. Chris Farron from the Spin Doctors would go play there all the time. And um, I got an internship running sound for the open mic every Monday night oh, when wow. I was 13 years old. Oh, geez. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was like this really incredible 
for me. And my parents had been like very protective up until that point. And this was an excuse for me to like get out of the house every Monday night, like stay out until very late, see hundreds of songwriters and really like just hone my craft by being able to observe people and um, just hang out in the scene. And I learned so much that way. Also inhaled a lot of secondhand smoke because it was before they had the lung. <laughs> so, you know, if I get lung cancer at the age of 40, we know why. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's part of the mystique of those places. You know, it's 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 all part of the atmosphere. New York's clubs are amazing. I used to live, I guess, about, about an hour between New York and an hour to, from Philly. And so I was just in my in the college years, early 90s, I'd end up going to a like brownies in New York City and seeing mud honey. Awesome. Yeah, or or, or go to uh, the Pontiac Grill and see you know Grantley Buffalo or or, or uh, sixteen horsepower some some amazing bands. Uh, Theater of Living Arts in Philly and seeing some fantastic Maria McKee. It, it but the atmosphere was it, it, big, nasty, gross, smoky bars. It was great. Totally. Then you were in there at thirteen, running sound. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing that like, I mean, I don't have any really like terrible horror stories, you know, of like being mugged or anything terrible in New York. And I don't know what it was, but I guess I, I have like a good resting bitch face that nobody <laughs> like ever bothered me. <laughs> they knew you were local. And they're like, I'm not going to screw with her. Totally. Yeah. I've never had a problem in New York. I just give off that vibe. But yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of enabled me to start gigging very early on. And okay. um, I got signed really young. I got signed at 17 to Sony Columbia and I don't think that would have happened had I not had the opportunity to start playing out at such a young age and really start writing at such a young age. And so in, in your first album, that was all original music? Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. So those were songs that I started writing when I was 13. Um, the day that my piano teacher gave me my first acoustic guitar, I got a Hal Leonard how to play guitar book and I went through the whole thing that day and I wrote I my first book. song. I have that <laughs> <Yeah>. book. <laughs> It was the blue, the blue cover, right? Yes, yes. Yep. I still have that. I think my kids have it too now. That's awesome. So, it's the best one. It was. It was great. I mean, I don't remember anything out of it. I can't read music to save my life, but my kids can. My kids can. All right, so you're a teenager and you get a record deal. That's insane. How do you feel when when that happened? What, what's going through your mind? It kind of seemed like it was too good to be true, you know, and. In a way, I never really fully believed that um, something good would come out of it. I had a lot of like self-doubt. And, you know, I think a lot of kids at that age feel like really invisible. Um, and oh, yeah. I, I was bullied a little bit. I was like very shy when I was little. And I always had like one friend, you know, in elementary <laughs> school. And so if that person was absent at lunch, I was like kicking a rock by oh. myself. <laughs> Michal, it, at recess, kicking rocks. Yeah, it was very sad. Oh. And um, I was like very much always like an overachiever and I had kind of like a dragon mom, you know, and so I got like straight A's. And I remember the first time that I got an A minus on something, I cried because I was like scared that my mom was going to kill me, oh, you know, like geez. that kind of like <laughs> I was like I had glasses, braces, the works. I was like totally a nerd. Oh, and gosh. then when I started writing songs, it was like suddenly I had my own identity and I could break out of that like classical music geek shell you know right um and then when i got signed it was like a little bit of validation like oh i am cool you yeah. know like i i'm i'm well, not yeah. this nerd that everybody picks on you know yeah and, and um, I mean, you, you can take that into school and like, check this out suckers how many of you have totally. a regular deal yeah there was like a little bit of that you know <laughs> i was like yes you know i am cool yeah and then on top of it all um i had met dave perner from soul asylum at tramps i played at right. tramps and you know, that was kind of like a quasi big, but still intimate venue. And so I got to like meet a lot of my heroes there. And I gave him my demo at the time, right before I got signed. And then he was interested in producing it. And so I asked him to my senior prom. That's and awesome. He went with me. And so that was like, I was really wow. like, I am cool. Did he go with, with the hair? Did he still have the weird, like the kind of quasi dread, short dread hair? He didn't have dreads, but he did have long hair at the time, and he did look like he hadn't washed his hair in like two months. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, and picked me up in a limo, and <laughs> it was cool. <laughs> that's awesome. All right, so you're you're in high school, flipping everybody off because you got a, a record deal, and you went to this prom with Dave 
Perner from Soul Asylum. All right, that that's pretty wild. Yeah, so I basically it, thought all of my dreams had come true. You know, I, it seems like that. I was like set, but you know, then I had like a typical music industry horror story, and it all came crashing down. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, but you still had a, 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 some pretty wild experience there. I mean, you're on some soundtracks. Um, you you want an Emmy? An Emmy. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about that. Was that off the sure, first so, album? Um, when I got the Emmy. Yes. That was actually, that was the second album. So um, I was on Columbia for two records. Um, I had Sky With Stars was in 2000, and then Coma was my follow-up CD. And um, at that point, I had already gotten in trouble at the label because um, they basically were, like, jerking me around. You know, like, I deferred going to college for three years. I got into Yale, and they basically were like, you can't go to school. You need to focus on, like, putting out records. And so I put my entire life on hold. And then it was just, like, this process it's like hurry up and wait because time in the span of a corporation is very different than in the span of a 17 year old's life you know and like all of my peers were going off to college and I was living at home and you know had like (laughs) nobody to talk to so now it's it's the opposite so now instead of now you're the one living at home totally yeah Uh. I thought I was going to be a rock star and now I'm like living with my parents you know (laughs) And then I had been like playing out hundreds of shows by this point every year because I'd been gigging since I was 13. And they basically told me to stop playing. They were like, you need wow. we're going to set you up on a big tour and you need to do like a tour that's worthy of a major label artist. And so don't play these shows that are going to like tarnish your image. Just wait for us to like put you on a big tour. So I wasn't gigging anymore, oh, really. And then <clears throat> um, Don DeVito, who signed me, was amazing. He's this like really, really amazing guy. He passed away a few years ago, Um, but he was like very much into making like careers for artists and not like flash in the pan success. And he was like a father figure to me and like a very, very nice person that really believed in me artistically. But he was like kind of on his way out at Columbia at that point anyway, because he was retiring and he got sick and he tried to give me as much creative control as possible. And we like went to Bearsville and you know, spent oh, nice. all this money that I'm still recouping to this day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. And we made this like record that I was really proud of that Perner produced. And then we delivered it to the label and they were like, we don't like, we, we don't want to release this. We don't hear hooks. We don't hear hits. Wow. And so um, they threatened to basically shelve it indefinitely. And oh so I, I, I reproduced it with um, my manager's husband in the city and like his studio. I like reproduced a lot of the tracks okay. um, and then they released that version of the record. But by now it's like I had a three firm deal and they counted that as two records for oh, my three because wow. I had to like remake the record. Um, and then I was like so frustrated because I was in this holding pattern that I did this interview in stuff magazine where I basically like talked about, I bad Jessica Simpson for like being hypocritical and having this like (laughs) having this like very like buttoned up virginal image, but then also like wearing like leather bustiers and short shorts to like try to sell records. I mean, in retrospect, (laughs) was I jealous of her? Yes. Should I not have said that? Yes. But it was like, you know, very frustrated and they were pouring all this money into her because they thought that she was going to be like the next Britney Spears, you know, and they weren't really, they didn't know what to do with me basically. And they kept on telling me to like niche down and be more pop. And they wanted me to work with other writers and um, just not be myself. Because at that point it was like pre like Avril Lavigne, pre them realizing right. that you could have like more of like a rock singer songwriter okay. success also. And they didn't have like the blueprint of what they were going to do with me basically. And so I got in a lot of trouble for saying that. Oh, and geez. they they bumped me to an imprint, um, RPM, which was Tony Bennett's son, Danny's label. Okay. So it was still under like um, the umbrella of Columbia, but it wasn't like Columbia proper. Okay. And then I made my second CD, Coma, and then they did like a limited run of that and they sent it to Hot AC and AAA, which was like totally the wrong format <laughs> yeah. for me because I was like an alternative artist, you know? And yeah. So, they could have like worked college radio or like, you know, tried to break me in like Europe or something. And they like kind of just totally mismanaged my career. And then after that, they basically dropped me. And that was like when Napster was starting and like peer to peer file sharing. Yeah. And it was totally changing the economic model of the industry. And they had three major waves of like personnel and artists being dropped. And then I was dropped in like the last one, basically. I've heard that, you know, I, I've done a few of these interviews now and I've heard that a <laughs> lot around that time period. 
a lot of the people that I've that I've spoken with, they said the exact same thing. Like, yeah, all that all that started happening, and then everybody that were that were were champions of us or the band were gone. They just yeah, and then they were left out in the waving in the breeze. Totally. And there were there were wonderful people at the label who really fought for me, like Howard Wolfing, for example, is an amazing person. And I'm working with him again, who is my publicist at Columbia. And, you know, Don DeVito was amazing. But yeah. he, of course, was getting very sick at that point. And so it just there, there wasn't anybody really able to fight for me at that point. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of skipping over a lot of stuff. There were some really good opportunities that I had while I was on Columbia. Um, one of them was that Don introduced me to Billy Joel, who kind of became a mentor to me for a little while. And that was amazing. That's a good um, mentor to have. Yes. Very, very so, nice. Very, very nice. Um, so, and what, so what kind of work did you end up doing with Billy? I ended up recording some of his classical stuff that he has written as William Joel. Um, <laughs> and then that also was right when his daughter was starting to get into songwriting. And so he wanted me to kind of like talk to her about songwriting and that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. um, and then I sang background vocals on um, a song that he did for that movie, Runaway Bride. There were like a couple of little interesting things that came out of it. Um, but that also didn't like fully go anywhere, you yeah. know. And then I also was introduced to Paul Glass, who was a music director from One Life to Live. And so I started doing um, work with them and I did like a lot of instrumental composition work. And they used some of my songs that I'd already written and I wrote some songs for them. And that's when I won the Emmy as part of the composition team for One Life to Live. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, so that was really cool. And I got to act on the show a couple of times, oh, even though I'm, like, the nice. worst actor in the history of the world. <laughs> I was, like, a DJ in one scene. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, my gosh. Can you get a copy of that for, for your own, I guess, library? I think, I think it does exist on, like, um, VHS somewhere but i have to have it transferred <laughs> all the technology has changed already oh my gosh but it's probably for the best that that stays in like the bat cave it's pretty embarrassing i'm like i get like when i'm in front of a camera which is why i covered my face i get like the fear i'm like oh. so just an awkward human being so for me to try to act is like a disaster <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> well you're doing great right now maybe it's because you covered your own yourself up but your style is really changed you, you went from a, a more of a pop sound to a lot angrier in like two albums <laughs> it was uh it, it, it was it was pretty pretty striking because i heard um when i was doing the research i i heard your uh, uh the song that you that you won the, the award for uh tissue paper oh, wings uh Refrain, refrain. That's the word I was looking for, and I've got it on my notes. I promise you. But those two songs couldn't be any more different. How did you go from from one to the other? Is it was it the frustration of of, of everything you've gone through with the label, or is it just you, that was the way you wanted the sound from the beginning? Um, I think I've always had both of those things in me, and I think part of it is just like the um, variety of my influences. You know, like I've always okay. had that kind of like classical stuff in me. So I would say like. Tissue Paper Wings is more coming from that classical vein um, and just having those influences. But, you know, I also really just like loved Nirvana and like Nine Inch Nails. Oh, I'm wearing yeah. wearing a Nine Inch Nails sweater right oh, now. Oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So I always had like I was always drawn to that really like dark, depressed, kind of angry sound, you know, yeah. and I can understand I find... that. Yeah, do you like that? that I, stuff yeah. Oh God, I was in college in the early '90s. Yes, that's that's all I listened to. So that's totally my wheelhouse, like '90s alternative rock and like industrial stuff. And um, if it wasn't angry, it was sad. You know, like yeah. I love like Elliot Smith. Oh God, Fiona yeah. Apple. You know, Jeff so, like, Buckley. Yeah, all of my heroes are dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't know. Like happy music, it just like doesn't do it for me, you know, or like happy art. And I think I'm coming around a little bit on that just because, um, you know, 
there is that like Leonard Cohen quote, like, um, what is it? Like everybody has a crack and that's how the light gets in or the, <laughs> I forget the, the exact um, quote, but I, you know, I'm starting to believe that like the bittersweetness of life is like that balance is really important, you know? So I've always yeah. written from like the darkness, um, but there is something about the light too that balances out the pain and the dark in a really nice way. Well, um, well for me, it was, I, I've actually, and this is going to sound funny. I, when I was growing up, definitely more on the, the darker side, the heavier side. I'm, I was listening to, you know, I grew up listening to Megadeth, Metallica, moved into Soundgarden, uh, and, and I was searching for, always looking for the, the new weird band that nobody knew. Mm-hmm. Once I had kids, that's when I ended up started listening to, you know, poppier stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. And I, I had, a, you know, I have a couple secret bands that that nobody knew about that I would always listen to, like you know, in the late '80s. I loved Duran Duran. I loved Hall and Oates. You know, no, nobody knew that. I would, you know, I'd put like a Hall and Oates cassette. <laughs> your, your in guilty pleasures. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, in in my school, if you know, if if you're walking around school with a Megadeth "Killing Is My Business" T-shirt and you're listening to Duran Duran, you're gonna get pummeled. And that's the that's the way it, it that's the way it rolled in in Somerville, New Jersey, but. <laughs> You know, I would, I would like hide, you know, I, I would have like a uh, Ravel's Bolero or something and I would hide it in a Megadeth cassette case and I'd just pop it in my wallet <laughs> awesome. so nobody would know. But I, I got more into it and more accepting of it and more, and accepting the fact that I actually liked it when I had kids. Like, I, mm-hmm. you know what? There's not, not all pop is crap. Some of it's pretty good. be a little bit of an optimist to have children even, you know, yeah. like to like, want like if, if life was all suffering we wouldn't want to continue it and pass Ex- it on you know? exactly i wouldn't want to subject my kids to it if it was if, if so that's a good very good point all right i'm feeling better all right see i'm feeling better already well all right so before we move on to the album you're also a lawyer yes so i've had um there have been times when i've tried to break away from music and after i got dropped from columbia that kind of was like a really traumatic experience for me, you know, because I had that like really early success. And then I was like, I found my voice. I found my identity. I'm not like nothing, you know, and then I kind of like had the fall, you know. Um, And so after I was dropped, I I went to Yale and I was there for four years and I didn't really know what I wanted to study because I was looking, I was, I was kind of like half there and half out doing my music still and trying so, to like do. Mm-hmm. So when, when, when that happened, you had already been accepted into Yale and you deferred it. Do you, yes. mm-hmm. that, do you have to reapply or do you, is it like once you're accepted, you're, you're pretty much in whenever you want to go or. I was pretty much in at that point, I think because I had such a like weird bio, you know, <laughs> that they were, <laughs> they're like, Oh, okay. You know, she, she has like a major record deal. So yeah, that was like, it was in. like a good extracurricular. You yes. know what I mean? <laughs> Um, and so I didn't have to like reapply or anything, which was really nice. So I had that kind of like fallback plan, but I also like, I didn't really fully take advantage of it because I wanted so much to be a rock star and I wanted to do my own music. So I just kind of like took whatever credits I had to, to graduate. And I ended up getting a political science degree. And then I was like, what am I going to do with a political science degree? (laughs) I'm not going to like become a politician, you know, open a little poli sci shop on main street. (laughs) Totally. So like then I was kind of screwed. So then I had a friend, Anna, who was applying to law school and she was like, oh, you should take the LSATs, you know. And so I did. And I got like a really good score and I applied to law school and I ended up getting in to Columbia. And I was like, all right, well, I guess I'll go to law school, you know. <laughs> and, and I hated it. And it was like the worst decision from the moment really? I began, because like one L year is hell. Like they totally just try to kill you in law school. And it's like the Socratic method and they humiliate you and it's like paper chase. And I'm like really introverted and I think I'm pretty smart, but I'm not like a good orator. And when I'm put on the spot, I freak out, you know, and Uh, so it was kind of a nightmare for me. Um, But I I went through it. I did a year and then I was like, I can't do this. This was the worst experience of my life. Like I clearly made a mistake. So then I got offered um, an opportunity to go to Vegas. Um, cause my manager at the time, John Greenberg was friends with somebody that I won't name. Who's a billionaire that owns a, a lot of hotels in Vegas. Yeah. And he was like, you know, they're, they're opening this lounge and they want to like start having a lot of music there. And 
and I auditioned for him and he was like, Oh my God, you're amazing. Your voice is amazing. We want to build a show around you. Like come out, Nice. you know, yeah, we'll like design this lounge show around you. And I was like, this is a great opportunity. Let me take a year off from law school and go do this. And I should have known from the beginning that it was like a a terrible idea because this guy was like, I do business on a handshake. Like I'm not going to give you a contract, but everybody trusts me and everybody knows me. And so, you know, you can trust me. And so I got a lease to go out there and, um, he wasn't going to pay me to play music. He was going to give me a job working in the high rollers lounge as a bartender. So I would get paid through that. Oh boy. And then I would be doing my music. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> and he would think like after having gone to law school for a year, <laughs> I would like be smarter and have asked for a contract or whatever, but I didn't. And I moved out there and I started working. I got all my licenses, you know, like my non gamers license and oh, everything else. Wow. And then it was like this crazy, just like nightmare. Like I was in one of the circles of hell, you know, because Vegas is a very bad place to live. Like you can live outside of the strip and it's fine. But yeah. when you're in Vegas, it's like everybody is going there to try to make a quick buck. And like all these young girls are flocking, no education because they know that they can make like thousands of dollars getting tipped for things. And like, yeah. it's just this really weird, disgusting culture of like a lot of disposable income and people that are like desperate, you know? Oh God. And, um, so, you know, from the beginning, the girls hated me because you have to work your way up the food chain in order to start being a bartender in the high rollers. Aren't you to start as a cocktail waitress in the main room and then like a, no cigarette girl, then a cocktail waitress, then a bartender. Then you move into the high rollers lounge as a cigarette girl. And then you're a cocktail waitress and then you're a bartender. So they all assumed that I was sleeping with the boss and that's how I got the job. And they hated me. Uh. And they all, looked like Barbies. They yes. had like the, the giant fake tits and the like <laughs> no butt. And they made us wear these humiliating outfits where like uh, the skirt was like your, the bottom of your ass is hanging out. We were wearing like these high heels. We couldn't lean against anything. We had 12 hour shifts. Oh my I was gosh. like doing the graveyard shift in the high rollers lounge. And like gamblers would come in and be there for three days straight sleeping and lose like a million dollars. And like, you know, they, they wouldn't even stop drinking. They would just like switch to Bloody Marys in the oh morning, you know? Jeez. And it was just like, it was so crazy. And like these crazy celebrities would come in all the time. And like, you know, athletes would come in. One time this guy came in with like a major league baseball championship ring. And he was like angry that I didn't serve him right away. And he's like, don't you know who I am? And I was like, I don't know anything about sports. I'm sorry. I don't know who you are. <laughs> So even like oh. like working that job was a nightmare. And then it became very clear that the guy that hired me wasn't going to do anything for me because it was like this quid pro quo situation. Oh, and I was like, I'm not going to sleep with you. And yeah. so he like didn't do anything for me. And so then I was like, I just moved out here. I got a lease. I'm at least making good money. Let me try to like save a little money because I was making like a thousand dollars in tips in cash a night, you know, man. And I was living in this complex that was like this luxury apartment complex because there was like this real estate boom and then bust and so there was like all this empty construction out there and um i didn't have any neighbors it was like totally deserted and so i had this like really nice apartment and there was like a uh gym within the complex that every day i would go and work out after i woke up in the afternoon after my (laughs) graveyard shift and one day my friend, my one friend in Vegas called me and he's like, Michal, why are there all these cop cars in your apartment complex? And I was like, what are you talking about? What? And I look outside and there's like all these police. And I was like, oh, they're probably just filming like CSI Las Vegas. I'm sure it's fine. And so I was going to go to the gym. I just took my, my um, apartment keys. I didn't take my car keys or anything. I go outside and I close the door and then this cop comes up and grabs me and is like, what apartment did you come out of? Where do you? And I'm like, I was, they like pull me into the office and they oh. wouldn't let me leave. And apparently I had a neighbor. I didn't even know that. But I had a neighbor <laughs> that was <laughs> on robbing banks, went on a, a bank robbing spree. <laughs> and he had out of town guests that were staying that also did not know that he was robbing banks. So they were in the office with me and the police had this like standoff with him over a megaphone for two hours, trying to like talk him out of there. And he ended up shooting himself, killing himself with a shotgun in the apartment next to mine. And so then I was like, I'm breaking my lease. I'm going home. Nothing could be worse than this. Even law school is better than this. (laughs) 
<laughs> I left the next day. I went back home. Gosh. I went back to law school. I finished law school. Then I got a job with one of, I got the biggest pay, the, the biggest firm in the United States hired me. Wow. And so I was making like six figures right off the bat, but I had all this debt from law school. So I was like, I have to go work for one of these big firms to pay back my, my student loans. Right. Yeah. And so then I was doing that. So now I'm like a corporate lawyer working 70 hour weeks. And of course oh, I'm miserable gosh. because I'm not doing any music. I have no energy for anything else. And I basically worked there for like two years, then burned out. I, I got married imagine. at this time. Oh boy. <laughs> and I got pregnant because they had a really good maternity leave policy. And I was like, I need to get out of here. <laughs> and this is my ticket. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I ended up having my first child. <laughs> I'm quitting law and I've never looked back. So that was fantastic. That was, you must love your, your firstborn son. Like, Thank <laughs> yes, you. Thank you. He saved me. That's amazing. So then you you started making music more on the independent side of things. Yes. So So, how how does it compare doing uh, records independently compared to on a major label for your record deal as a teenager? So um, it's very different, obviously, and it's better in some ways and it's worse in some ways. And so I just released my sixth independent record. This is my eighth record overall. Wow. Um, and you know, just in the record making process has changed so much because when I made my first record, they spent a million dollars at Bearsville and we like, we recorded to tape and it was just like a completely different experience. And then, you know, I made a a record that was a side project, Magic Cat, and we made that one in two weeks on like somebody's laptop in an apartment in Chinatown for like two grand, you know, just like the technology. (laughs) I got I got another message and my phone fell down again. Okay. <laughs> Ouch! She dropped me. I know. I'm getting dropped now. Jeez. I now I feel your pain. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> sorry about yeah, that. Yeah. So that that's changed. Um. No problem. Yeah. So that's changed a lot. Just like how the bar of entry for making a record in terms of like how much money you need and like yeah. how much expertise you need is totally different. Um. And then. You know, when I got signed as a teenager, I thought that I could just be an artist, you know, and just be like, oh, I just like to make art and I don't need to know about like the marketing side and the publicity side and like how to work radio and how to plan a tour and all of these things. Now you have to know how to do them. It's like the do it yourself era. Um, Yeah, that's for sure. And I think for a lot of artists, it's really difficult, you know, because it's like two different sides of your brain. And um Clearly, I can do the more detail oriented stuff, having like been a lawyer, but it's much harder for me. It hurts me to use <laughs> that part of my brain. You know? So that's been difficult, but it's also empowering because now it's like I, I know how to do all this stuff because I have to. Um, so how do you approach the, the marketing side a little differently now since that you have to do it yourself now? Yeah, so um, social media has been definitely a big part of it. Um, And when I made this last record, when I was writing the songs, it was right when Facebook Live came out. And so I was writing a song and then I would perform it that night um, on Facebook Live. And so I would get like immediate feedback from my community and see like what songs people were responding to. And so that was really, really helpful. That's really cool. Yeah. And um, I actually wrote like 100 songs for this record. And then I ended up picking... 15 of them and <laughs> a stupid phone. I thought I turned my notifications off while we were talking and it's still buzzing it. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to adjust something here. So there we go. I think I've I wedged like my I'm phone. I'm on in. one of those, like um, those rides, you know, like the 4d thing or the, 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 uh, the ship that goes up back and forth and you flip around. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's the one that makes you vomit. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. My show makes you vomit. That's, that's my, my tagline. I love roller coasters. So, yeah. so perfect for me. I think I've got it. I think I've got my phone wedged in now, where it won't do anything. I think. I, I right. really do love thrill rides. Actually, you, you reminded me of a funny story when I um, when I took the bar exam. I actually took two bars, and it was like the worst experience oh, of gosh. my life because it's so stressful. You like study so intensely, and then um, I took it at the Javits Center, the New York bar, and. <laughs> 
there was a girl that um, I guess had like a panic attack and started hyperventilating. And the paramedics came in to the Javits Center and wheeled her out. And everybody was still writing. (laughs) It's like a movie. It really was. It's like crazy. Nobody stopped because you're just you're so like primed and you just you know, you need to like get through this exam and every second counts, you know. And so when I finished. Um, after I took the bar, my friends Galia and I went skydiving because oh, wow. I have a fear of heights. And I was like, the only thing that I can imagine that would be more terrifying to me than having taken the bar is jumping out of an airplane. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we did that. And it was really fun. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, that was one thing I, I wanted to do for a long time. And then I got married and had kids and I, I have like no desire to do that anymore. Yeah, now that I have had them, I can never do it again. But yeah. then it didn't matter if I died. It was only <laughs> me. <laughs> so, it was crazy. Uh, so you've got a new album out. And yeah. it's, I, I'll tell you what, it's really great. I really enjoyed listening to it over and over again. Um, and, and the funny thing is, I, all right, so I have a day job, unfortunately, because <laughs> I'm not making any money doing this yet either. So I'm li- I listen to the songs, but I can't. I don't always have the opportunity to look and see what the title is. So I, I will be referring to as many notes as I can while I'm talking to you about this. So if I get That's something okay. wrong, I apologize <laughs> in advance. Um, the, 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 the album starts off on a real downer. The, the song yeah. is really depressing. Yeah. The, yeah, it is. I'm sorry. No, I, no. I <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm sure I mean, it's a great song. It really, but it. What was the the thought of of starting it off that way? Because there are other songs that that are, are and and the album as a whole. I mean, it's got some poppier songs, but they're they've got some amazing guitar work coming in in the middle. You, I'll hear this great, like like a a song that could be on the radio, and then all of a sudden I'll hear this like totally just, just chugging, crunchy <laughs> guitar in it, and then it's like this is awesome. It, it's it's the whole album. Definitely, to me, sounds like something I would have listened to back in college, like like early to mid nineties. Yes, that's so awesome. That, that makes me very happy. Oh, good, good. <laughs> I'm I'm hoping because you you never know when you say something like that to somebody. It sounds like something from the early to mid nineties. Oh, well, really? That's that's not what I was going for at all. But thanks. So I'm glad no, that that's was, totally that's like my favorite era of music. Oh, so good. That makes me really really happy. Um. Yeah, so I had basically two main collaborators in making this record. Um, one of them was Cosm Zadie, who was the producer engineer. And um, and then my other one was A.R., who's played the guitars. Um, okay. So that like crazy solo on Let Me Down Easy is him. That's, um, I was going to tell you how amazing <laughs> that solo was. That is incredible. Yeah, he's an amazing musician. He also plays saxophone. He's like crazy, crazy good. Um, wow. But he was basically like my main... Um, confidant when I was working on the songs, demoing them. And then also when we like put the record together and when we sequenced it. So we went through it very carefully and we made all these different orders and we really wanted to just like take people on an emotional journey, you know? And so we wanted people to like listen to the record as a whole. And um, it's just that that seemed like when we figured out that sequence, it seemed like it could be no other way, you know? Well, it's because the first song is the crash, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And the guitar on that, was composed by Scott Puteski. I don't know yes, if I'm pronouncing yes. that. Who most people would know better as Daisy Berkowitz from Marilyn Manson. Yes, yeah. And so he um, he's been my friend for a long, long time. Um, I met him when I was on Columbia, and I reached out to him. I just emailed him. <laughs> I found his email on the internet, and I was like, "I'm playing <laughs> at South by Southwest. Would you be interested in playing with me?" And he got back to me, and he was super nice, and he was really into it. And we cool. stayed friends since then. Um, and you know, he um, was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, um, I guess, like seven years um, ago. And then he lived way past his prognosis. They said that he had like two years to live. Um, oh, wow. And he went through so much with this cancer. He was such a fighter and he was he was going to the Mayo Clinic and he was having chemo like every four weeks for like years. Oh, and I don't know how he did it, but um, he was still like so motivated to do art, both visual art and music. And when I was making this record, he played on the crash. And then unfortunately we didn't end up using that version because I switched yeah. producers. I had demoed some of the songs and then I found cause, um, but he wrote the guitar line for that. And it was 
one of the last things that he played on the chemo caused him he like was on some like weird new chemo drug and he lost feeling in his fingers and so he couldn't oh, wow. play guitar anymore at the end oh, um, so that was kind of like a really special thing that he played on that um, so that and and wrote the guitar lines so that could that's as far as you know, maybe one of the last things he actually ended up playing on was your demo. Yes. Mm -hmm. wow. And I actually, um, you know, right before he died, I had reached out to him and I saw him post on Instagram that he was like um, very jaundiced and he was going through some chemo and that hospice had come in. And so I called him, of oh, course, wow. and I was like, oh, my God, what's going on? And um, he was like, no, no, I'm, I sent them away. It's it's not like I'm 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 going to beat this. I'm starting a new drug. And and. I, but I could tell that it was kind of like the end, you know? Yeah. Um, and I spoke to AR and I told him, I was like, you know, I don't know, like what's going to happen. Like, I wish that I could go see him. And he was like, well, why don't you like, just go see him, you know? And so I did, I flew out to Florida and, um, when I got there, you know, I had, I had contacted him before I left and I was like, is it okay if I come? And he was like, oh yeah, of course. And I was like, what do you want me to bring? Do you want me to bring you like New York bagels? <laughs> and so he like, he asked me to bring like bagels from Zay bars and stuff. And oh, I nice. did. And I flew out there and I got there and he like wasn't answering his phone. And I like couldn't get in touch with him. And I was like calling and calling and calling. And I called his parents and I couldn't get in touch with them. And I was like, fuck, like, I don't know if I'm going to get to see him. And I went back to the hotel and they were like having karaoke in the bar and there were like these 70 year old guys and I ended up singing karaoke with them. And it was like, just this like crazy night. And then, um, and then his mom called me and she told me that he was basically in hospice and I went to see him and, um, and I saw him that night and he passed away the next morning. And oh so gosh. I got to kind of like say goodbye and I sang to him and I held his hand and it was like this very like, um, very sad, but very meaningful. And I was so glad wow. that I went, you know, so that's that was like, yeah, I got to say goodbye to him. <laughs> so, and you still have that demo with you. So that's, that's yes. going to be so special to you then. Yes. Yeah. Now, is there any thoughts of ever releasing that as a, on, on anything for at all? You know, that's a really good suggestion. I haven't thought about that, but that's not a bad idea. Um, I'm full of great suggestions. Just you ask, are. ask so any of my other guests. Really good <laughs> that's a really good idea, you know? And then his, his mom actually passed away shortly after he died. And so, um, Jessica from Jack of Jill was like doing an auction of some of his art and his guitars and stuff to try to help his dad. And so oh. it's actually not a bad idea to, to release that and maybe, um, try to give some funds to his, his family and stuff. Oh, that See, that'd be a great idea. So, now, all right. So let's, let's get into, into a little more of the, the album here. Cause I, I sensed a theme as I was listening to these and, 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 there's some, I guess, more recurring themes of like bondage and sucking and biting. That, those are the three things that <laughs> seem to just come up constantly throughout the, 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 the album. So, My oral fixation. Yeah. So I, I was wondering, what, what, out of the hundred songs, were all hundred songs that you wrote about bondage and biting and sucking? Or was this just something that just, when you pick them, it's just a coincidence? There were a few other ones that had similar themes, but, um, yeah. So I think a lot of the record is really just about me feeling like repressed, you know, and like, um, having all of this like bottled up emotion and feeling like I'd lost my identity. And so when that kind of started to surface, um, is when I started writing and it was this weird creative process for me because normally I like agonize over writing songs and it takes me like a really long time. And I always worry that it's going to be the last song that I'm ever going to write. And with this, with this record, I just started writing and it was like coming out of me. Like I was writing at least a song a week um, wow. for a year and I just couldn't stop. And there was like so much in me that I really felt like I needed to express. And part of that was like, you know, I, I'd gone to the law path. I'd become a mother. I devoted myself to having three kids in a really short period of time. I'd moved to suburbia and I had this whole like identity that I felt like I was trying to hammer myself into that wasn't me, you know? Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I had like a midlife crisis or something after my third son was born, but I really was like, this is not me, you know, like, this is not what I wanted. This is not how I pictured myself. And I need to find a way to get back to that person that I was when I was 17. And when yeah. I, what I was so sure that I knew what I was put on this earth to do and what I had to say and, you know, and, and I felt like I had kind of like lost that. And so like, 
for example, the song old on the record Mm -hmm. is about how like that was when I felt the most like myself when I was 17 years old. And I feel like a part of me is like um, frozen at that age. And there's like this like arrested development. And I'm always going to be that person that was at that age, you know? Oh gosh. Yeah. Now, you know, you also have, have, uh, how do I put this? Um, The song cut me. That's a freaky song. I love it. It's it's it, it kind of it's a little scary. Sometimes I have to cut myself to let the poison out. And as the blood drips down my <laughs> but it, it's uh <laughs> It's not a, you don't act, you don't cut yourself. That's not what something. But it, it's a it's a parallel for other problems that you had from what yes. when I was reading, and mm-hmm. so when how did that reoccur? I mean, is it was it just was that one of the things that caused you to to want to start writing again? Because I believe it was it was an eating disorder, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So when I was signed to Columbia, there was like a lot of pressure on me to look a certain way because I was a young girl in the music industry, and um, they actually wanted me to lose weight, even though I was like never heavy or anything. They told me that I need to lose weight. They told me that I should get a nose job, which I didn't do, thank God. But I did get like lip implants for a little while that I had taken out eventually. And there was just like a lot of pressure on me to like look like this Hollywood ideal, you know? Simpson. Yeah, exactly. And like, um, and who knows what she was pressured to do, you know, like there's, there's just like this whole kind of machine that looks at people as product and, I already kind of had a little bit of that anyway, because I think just being a teenage girl in our society, you get that for magazines and everything else. And so I think I was on my way to like having an eating disorder already, you know, and like my mom had been like dyeing my hair blonde since I was very little and like encouraged me to wear blue contact lenses and all this stuff. And, um, you know, I had a lot of like weird influences in my life already at that point. And so I was like predisposed to hating myself. You know? Oh, no. And then, so I ended up getting an eating disorder and it was never to the point where I was like hospitalized. I ended up like getting to a point where I was like really thin and then I just kind of was able to get myself out of it. Um, But then over time, whenever I was like very anxious, it would kind of resurface throughout my life. And so when I, um, when I was feeling this like displaced, like repressed identity um, after I had my third son and I think I had like some postpartum depression also kind of mixed in there, it started to resurface again. And um, I ended up getting to like a very unhealthy weight and I was just like not in a good place. And that's when I started writing the songs, you know, and I was able to kind of like pull myself out of it again. And I think part of it was having this channel to kind of like get the poison out. That's another theme on the record also that I talk about a lot. It's just like getting the poison out, you know, like cutting to to get the poison out and stuff. And um, I know a lot of, it's kind of become this trope where artists always say like music is cathartic for me and it's therapy and, but it's like so true, you know? And so it's like been this, um, this way that I've had of just like helping myself that I've found much more effective than anything else. Like I've gone to therapy and I've done all the other things and none of them have been as effective to me, you know, like religion, it doesn't really work for me, but right. like music works. You know? Well, that's well, you know, the, the songs on the, on the album are fantastic. Uh, I'm looking at some of the ones that I, I love. Believer, Devil You Love, fantastic. I think my favorite is Affirmation Chain. And I love that the Brody chant thing that, that you do in the beginning. How did you come up with that? So I think I was like listening to Tubin throat singing at the time. And I was like, oh, let me try to do that, you know? Oh, wow. Um, so I was just like, and also I've been teaching like vocal coaching for a few years now. I've mm-hmm. been doing that for seven years since I quit law. And um, so I have learned a lot about like moving around the resonance in like different parts of your mask and like seeing how that affects your tone and everything and so um i was playing around with that and i thought i just thought it sounded really cool <laughs> well it's it's awesome and i heard the 
ver- live version you did on on YouTube this, uh, today, and it's that's just as cool. That was thank really, you. <laughs> I really I like the really long intro. Yeah, you got to hear Ar doing his uh, um, improv stuff there. That's yes. all. Yeah, he just like makes it up on the fly. Really? Oh, yeah. that that was so fantastic. In fact, now you've got um, th- at the end, you've got I guess it seems like it's a little hidden track at yes. the end. So is that now? I I, I love hidden tracks. Growing up, you know, collecting CDs. I I swear I've got about in in my room below where I'm at right now. I've got probably. 3,000 to 3,500 CDs. That's so, so awesome. <laughs> so I've got, I've got my, my share of hidden tracks, but it, did you do that? All, uh, that kind of like a little nod to the nineties or. Yes, totally. Yeah. No, it's like, um, uh, what's it called? The, the nine inch nails record. I think it's broken. Oh yes. And like, there's like track 99 and a hundred. Yes. And Nirvana. <laughs> it, in, it just keeps on like skipping and yes, yes. Nirvana as well. Endless yeah, so nameless. Totally was. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So that that was awesome. I really enjoyed finding that. That that was really cool. So. And that's my producer, Cause, singing with me on Keeper oh, 2. Okay. That, I, so he's got I, a, a very different voice than mine. It was yeah. really fun to kind of like mix the two. And it was kind of a nice palate cleanser, too, because it's also like it's such a depressing record <laughs> that I felt like people were going to be like, oh, oh, like if they needed to have like a happy song. I, I get kind of a feeling of, of, of some influences that I that you may have had. And tell me if I'm wrong with this, because I hear a little... Um, like Tracy Bonham, maybe Poe. Yes, yes. in, in oh your God, music. Yes. So it, it's all right. Spot on. I was just I was just talking about Tracy Bonham today. Oh really? So funny. Oh yeah. my gosh. <laughs> I haven't listened to her album in a lo- the 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 one album that I had the her first one in a long long. I don't even know if I still have it. I have to check. But but it you know the first time I I, I listened to your album that's Tracy Bonham and Poe were the first two things that popped into my head. I'm like, man, this is this is really cool because. I re- like her- that was some good listening. Yeah, and li- any, anything <laughs> Linda Perry did, you know, those mm-hmm. I've I've got, you know, the one Four Non Blondes album that that she did, and then uh, two, her two solo albums. Uh, they, they were huge in in forming my musical tastes back in those days. So that's awesome. So <laughs> I, I hear a lot of that in your stuff, and it, it, it you are it spot on. <laughs> well, that made me really happy to hear it. So I'm really enjoying the album, and I'm. I, and I, unfortunately, I don't have the physical copy, so I'm hoping that I will get one soon. Because yes. as a photographer, I, I really love the images from it. The one or, I've only been able to see one or two, but the cover is is really interesting. It, yeah. So the the guy who took the photos, um, he's amazing. Like he he owns an art gallery, and he's he does a lot of photography, and he photographs a lot of bands, and he wanted to get back into doing music photography. Okay. And so we, we took the photos in the gallery, um, and he, we, like, cleared off the plinth that they have the, um, the statues on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Now, the font in there, it says the title is No Resolution, but R.E. in Resolution is grayed out a bit. All right, so tell yeah. me a little bit about what that's about. So um, it, it's a good it's good that you caught that. So it is supposed to be like no solution. It's a play on words. And um, it, it just goes along with like the whole depressing theme of the record. And there's a lot of like hidden imagery in the design as well. So AR, my um, collaborator is a graphic designer as well. And he did oh the graphic design on the CD. And um, on the back of the CD, there's a logo also that's like two circles with like little um, infinity symbols on them. And it's supposed to be a cage within a cage, which is oh. like representative of how... I feel about life <laughs> and like and the CD inside. It has like part of the logo on it. So when you take the CD out, um, it like completes the, um, actually when you put it back in, it completes the logo. And then when you take it out, oh, it's like cool. missing a piece. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. So there's like all this cool stuff in there. That is awesome. <laughs> and I, I was curious because you also have a song called solution. Yes. Yes. Which is a very depressing song. It's about how the solution is suicide. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm getting, I'm getting a theme here. Yeah, but, there's a lot of themes that kind of go through um, all of my records. Like if you listen to them on a more like longitudinal way, if you listen all the way through to all of them, you'll hear a lot of themes come back, and both musical and lyrical. Well, the, the one thing that I noticed uh, comparing your earlier work to this work is that earlier on, your your lyrics were much more metaphorical, where right now yes. they're pretty blunt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, you, you don't bother uh, writing in metaphors anymore. Yes. Well, I, I always thought that like I had to um, 
couch my lyrics, like to make it more high art or something, mm -hmm. you know, like I needed to be more vague. And I do appreciate um, that sometimes in lyrics, because I think that it allows you to kind of project whatever you want onto lyrics if they're more um, vague, you know, like yeah. anybody can kind of read what they want into them. Exactly. But for this one, I was like, I just, I need to, like, there's just stuff that I need to say, and I need to say it in, like, the most blunt way possible. And also just the speed at which I was writing kind of prevented that, um, that premeditation. Like, it was just this, okay. like, flow of ideas, and however it came out, it was very stream of consciousness and very unfiltered. Uh, well, it, it came, definitely comes across that way, and it, it's really refreshing to, to know what, what the artist is, is thinking. I know everybody's like, oh, you know, you listen to Tool and, and you can't understand half the lyrics Maynard's singing. And, and oh, well, we do that on purpose. We don't print the lyrics because we want everybody to have their own interpretation. I get tired. That Sometimes that almost becomes a little too pretentious for me. Well, I like an artist to sometimes just, just say what they want to say, what you're supposed to say. Say what you want to say. Say what you're trying to get across. Just tell me. I'm not that smart. Yeah, for me, lyrics have always been of paramount importance, you know, and I think a lot of musicians always say like the music comes first, which is understandable because they're musicians. You yeah. know? But for me, it's always been like the lyrics have been very, very important to my music. And obviously, I appreciate bands that don't put as much stock in their lyrics, like Nirvana, for example, like he would just supposedly like make stuff up in the studio and like make mouth noises and then yeah. like make words out of that. But um, for me, the lyrical content was always like really important. Well, I'm... I'm <laughs> I've kept you for quite a while tonight, and I only have a, a one or two more things I want to ask you because you are a vocal coach. Yes, <laughs> and so and, and you're a big Kurt Cobain fan. Yes. How does how do singers do that growl that, that like the Cobain Chris Cornell kind of growl without blowing your voice out completely? How how is that possible? So that is a very good question. It's a form of extreme singing, and it's not something that I'm very good at. So. Um, but you, there are ways to do it in a healthy way and there are ways to do it in a not healthy way. And um, if you're like scraping through your vocal cords, like, and like really pushing from your throat, yeah. that's going to really damage your voice. But there's supposedly ways that you can just like manipulate the amount of compression that you're using with your breath support that can produce that sound. So like, for example, if you do like vocal fry, like, uh, that puts basically no stress on your vocal cords. Okay. And so people are able to like use that in order to get more of a distortion effect on their voice. I'm glad you, you gave me an example because I've heard that phrase before and I had no idea what in the <laughs> hell vocal fry was. Yeah, usually people refer to it when they're talking about like how annoying like the Kardashians are when they speak. Because <laughs> they use vocal fry and like up speak a lot, you know, so they'll uh, be like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that's one way to um, approach it. But I think like Kurt Cobain, for example, probably was not singing in a healthy way, which is one of the reasons that people theorize why he was always having like stomach problems that they couldn't diagnose because he was like straining so much. And like maybe um, he uh, wasn't yeah. like breathing in a relaxed way that that was causing a lot of tension and, and that was like giving him stomach problems. Uh, um, okay. I think. Chris Cornell is probably a better example of somebody that was able to use his voice in a really healthy way and yet sing in this like incredibly virtuosic way, oh, you yeah. know? So he clearly knew what he was doing and was able to have a very long career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So and the last question is, all right, do you have any advice for maybe a podcast host about vocal control? You know, cause when, when I talk to somebody, you know, maybe songs about bondage and, 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 <laughs> And sucking and, and, and my voice tends to get a little high. So, I mean, how do how do I control stuff like that? Besides, well, maybe like not well, be uncomfortable with it. Well, I think that you have a great radio voice. Oh, first thank of you. All. I was gonna thank I was gonna compliment you on that. And, <laughs> and I actually I love when people have expressive voices and they go up and down in their pitches and how it like modulates with emotion. I think that's one of the coolest things because it's almost like. I mean, singing is basically talking set to melody, right? And so okay. the more expressive you are with your, your voice when you're speaking, I love that because I'm a singer. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's so like melodic and it expresses so much emotion. And singing and speaking are, um, are communicative, right? So we yeah. want to be able to express that emotion. And so I don't think that you need any help. I think oh. you're, you're doing an amazing job. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Where can people find the album? Where can they follow you on social media and, and help support you? Well, thank you so much for having me on. And 
Um, people can find the album anywhere records are sold. So on all of the digital platforms um, like iTunes and Amazon and Spotify and Pandora. Um, and then if they want to connect with me on social media, my Facebook is facebook.com slash Michal Tauber. My Instagram is Michal Tauber Insta. My YouTube is Michal Tauber YouTube. And um, that's probably the best way to do it. If people want to get a physical CD, they can email me at michal.tauber at gmail.com. We made a very limited run of the CDs. And my okay. name is like Michael without the E dot T-O-W-B-E-R at gmail.com. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. But sure. thank you so much for coming on and spending your evening with me. Well, I love your show, and I'm going to go back and listen to all of your episodes. Oh. You're such a great interviewer, really. Oh, thank you so much. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.